All right, so we're going to be in Revelation 6 this morning. I'm going to cover a lot of ground. Um, looking at the calendar, probably this will be the last week in the book of Revelation before the new year because Christmas is coming, and I've got some stuff knocking around in my brain to do for Christmas, and I don't really want to be talking about the seven trumpets of judgment um, on Christmas Eve or whatever. Um, I don't know, it's just going for a different vibe for Christmas, all right? And I know you'd be happy because y'all are just gluttons for it, but I'd rather, you know, have a little bit of jingle bell kind of thing going. Um, but who knows what will happen, you never know. But um, So this morning I'll be wrapping up the seals section that we started last week and then doing the, the 144,000, which is a nice kind of wrapping up of the seal section and orients us towards the trumpets, and it'll be a nice, really nice natural break, all right? Um, but that's a lot to bite off in one sermon, but I'm going to do it, all right? Um, so I'm going to go for it. Okay, so let's start with uh, chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Um, I'm not going to do uh, this section, especially the 144,000. There's a lot of different perspectives on that. And it's very tempting for me to go into teacher mode and start trying to lay out for you all the different perspectives and tell you what I think about each one. But I'm not going to do it because this is not a class. This is, I'm supposed to be preaching. And I can't preach something I don't believe. Not honestly, anyway. And so I'm just going to tell you where I'm coming from. And if you want to know the, the kind of foundational assumptions I'm making, listen to last week's sermon, or you can go back to the first week and listen to that. Um, and y'all don't really want me up here doing like a, a debate with myself, which is what that becomes. There's this, there's this idea, but I don't like that idea because of this. And there's this idea, and I don't like that idea because of this. And you're like, why are you debating yourself? It's not even really honest to do that. If I was going to do that, I would find people that have that perspective, and we would do a debate. But I hate debates. It just makes me sad. And it just becomes about who's smarter than the other, and I don't want to do that. So I'm just going to tell you where I'm coming from. And if you're like, oh, I don't like that idea, praise God for you. Go ahead and not like that idea, all right? Um, but I can't preach something I don't believe. So that's kind of my perspective, all right, on, on this. I might do a little hat tip to the other things, but... Um, I'm the one with this job, so i got to do it, all right? All right, Revelation 6, 9 through 11. This is the fifth seal. We did the first four last week, the four horses of the apocalypse last week, and we're number five this morning, and here's what it says. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Okay, so these are martyrs. These are not just martyrs in the future or martyrs during a future short period of time of seven years right before Jesus comes. But these are all the martyrs throughout all of history that are 
gathered up and they are in the, the prime, the highest place of honor in John's vision. Remember the throne room of God, God's on the throne, his glory radiating out like a rainbow, right? The, the creatures around the throne doing his bidding, the, the, the seraphim and cherubim. Then you have the 24 elders on the ground level around representing the church and then the multitudes, right? The only human being that gets to be on the throne is Jesus. And then underneath that, just underneath it, under the throne. So at the throne, under the throne, so not at the place of Jesus, but just underneath Jesus are the martyrs. It's the highest place of human honor in the kingdom of God is to be a martyr. So every Christian that has died for the cause of Christ is seen in John's vision as being under the throne and he tells them to to rest the time has not yet come there is something one of the things at least that we know God is waiting on in terms of timing of when Jesus returns is that there's some number of martyrs that has to be some threshold that has to be crossed he says wait a little longer rest a little longer until the rest of you come until the rest of the martyrs are killed. That's an amazing idea to me. So the timing of the return of Christ, and we don't know what that number is, and don't try, okay? Don't be that guy. But there is a, that's an honor. that the, the timing of God is he is waiting on them. That's amazing. That at least one of the things God is, God so honors. Imagine God saying, hold on, we'll just wait for you. Like guys, when you're, if you're married and your wife is upstairs getting ready and you're wanting to go somewhere, go on a date, you honor her, right, by waiting. If you just hopped in the car and went on your date without her because she was running late, you would, not, you would be dishonoring her, right? She would be slightly upset. And I think it's the same idea here. Is that they are in such a place of honor that God is willing to wait for all of them to show up. Right? It's a beautiful picture. All right, seal number six. Somebody was asking me about this this morning. 12 through 17. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. Blood moons. I'm not going there, sorry. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. And just try to imagine this. You're meant to just imagine, picture this. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? So I don't take this to be literal. That shouldn't be a surprise to you at this point. I don't think this is a picture of how the movies picture Armageddon where mountains are crumbling and everything's crazy, 
and the world is kind of earth is being I think this is a prophetic picture um, this is common prophetic language for all of the institutions the, that, that we consider to be solid and unshakable governments the banks um, all the various institutions that have been around as long as we can remember and we assume will be around for forever into the future. Most of us assume, or at least act like, America will be here for forever. That this geopolitical boundary we have set on our globes will be here forever. Try going to Venezuela. Greece. Where's Rome? Do you even know where Rome is on the map anymore? Think about Germany, Russia. All, think about all the immovable, unshakable governments that we thought would be around for forever, and they're right now just shaking and crumbling and cracking and breaking apart. Nothing is guaranteed. The stars and mountains and other cosmological features is common prophetic symbolism like in Isaiah and Ezekiel. Um, for the seemingly unshakable institutions, kingdoms, governments, and cultures of the world falling down and being dismantled. That's what I believe this means. The sky being rolled up like a scroll is a picture of Jesus bringing things to a close. That is a glorious moment. If you are in Christ, that will be a glorious moment. He is rolling up the scroll. He's finishing everything up. He rolled it out. He broke the seals, he rolled it out and said, I'm doing the will of the Father, executing it, and he does it, and then he says, done, and he rolls it up, puts it under his arm, as I imagine it, and says, let's go on into eternity. And so for those who are not in Christ, there will be a well-reasoned panic when they see that things are coming to a close and the wrath of God has been poured out and they are without excuse. And they will say, who can stand underneath this? And the answer is in the next chapter. <laughs> Steel number seven, which is after chapter six, we will come back to, to the 144,000 in just a minute, is very interesting, very simple, but very interesting. Chapter eight, verse one, it says, when the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was a silence in heaven for about half an hour. Silence. This is the silence of completion, as they call it. It's the same reason, if you remember in the creation, they have seven days of creation. What, what did God do on the seventh day? He rested. Why? Because he's finished. <laughs> it's a moment of quiet. There's been all this activity and work, and then there's a moment of rest where God simply enjoys what he's done. I think that's going to be an amazing moment. When everything's finished. Everything, as Tolkien said, everything that was sad has become untrue. And we sit and we go, wow. It's like the silence at the end of a day. Those of you whose kids are old enough that you now have that, that moment of silence at the end of the day. You've been running like crazy all day long making it happen, making it rain, trying to raise kids or do your job, and then you get to the end of the day, and then it's just quiet for just a minute. That feeling, but times eternity. I'm looking forward to it. 
Maybe it's because I'm an introvert. I imagine heaven just being quiet. <laughs> I'm kidding. Sort of. I would get bored eventually. For after five minutes, that's right. So, what do we do with this 144,000 business? This brings us to the point where I think if you are really engaging with the text, you might be a little scared. Because if we've talked about seven, well, six seals of judgment and a, and a moment of silence. The, and none of it's particularly fun sounding, right? You've got all sorts of bad things happening. And if you're sitting here and you're going, wait a minute, um, I don't want to be here for this. The problem is you've been here for this since you were born. And so what do you, there's a fear and of anticipation, I think, that you can begin to feel like there's no hope, this is going to be hard, and you're sort of bracing yourself. And I think, my theory is that John senses this, or Jesus through John knows that you'll feel this way. And so there's some hope here, all right? It's a great way to break into Christmas, all right? There's some hope here. Right here in between sixth and sixth and seventh seal is some assurance. Let's read it, and we'll talk about it. Chapter 7, the first four verses. It says, After this I saw four angels. So this is a new, new vision. I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So what's this all about? First of all, it's a new vision. Sort of a vision within a vision. All right, before we had the throne room, and now John's seeing something different. Okay? And what he sees is four corners, which is just biblical way of saying the whole earth, like all of it. Okay? A box has four corners. It's just all the earth. Okay? And there are four winds, which is a, another very easy-to-understand prophetic picture of judgment. Winds blowing. It's not a positive, it's a negative. All right? And so the judgment of God is about to blow over the whole earth, and there's four angels who were presiding over it. Okay? And then God, or Jesus, says to them, Wait, first we have to seal this 144,000 people on their foreheads. And this is very revelation-y. This is very much like the book of Revelation, right? This whole forehead thing. We've seen this several times already, that I will write my name on their foreheads. I will write the name of my son on their foreheads. I will write the name of the city of God on their foreheads, right? And we'll see it again. And in fact, we also see the counterfeit of this. I told you there's another theme in Revelation of Satan always providing a counterfeit. Because Satan... There's the mark of the beast, and he says, I will place my mark on them. The Antichrist, will, the beast, will, which is Satan, will place his mark on them. And it's not a literal, it's not like a tattoo, 
or a chip in your arm. It's a counterfeit picture of ownership, saying Satan will put his name on some and God will put his name on others. Sorry to bust your conspiracy theory bubble. If you want to get an RFID chip in your arm, that's insane, but for other reasons. But not because you're not giving your life to Satan by getting a tattoo or even if you want to get a barcode. That's the most ridiculous tattoo. If anyone has a tattoo, I'm sorry. I don't mean to offend you, but are you a product? Maybe it's a, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's a metaphor for something, but. That's not what that's about, and we'll get into that later, but that's what this means, that he is his, putting his name on your forehead is a sign of ownership. I own you, right? Authority, God names you, and he names you after himself. He changes your name to Jesus because that's who died for you. That's who purchased you. So you get the picture. So what is this 144,000 business? That's probably the most confusing and most talked about and controversial part of this section. The rest is fairly simple to understand. So there's three questions we need to ask. One is, who is the 144,000? What does that number mean? And what does it mean to be sealed? If we answer those three questions, then this all makes sense, all right? So first question, the hardest one, who is the 444,000? Some will say, here's my hat tip to other, other ideas. Some will say that's a literal 144,000 Christians who will be, everyone else gets raptured before any of this stuff I've been taught, before any of the seals and trumpets and bowls happen. That's a fun theory. It feels great. I just don't believe it's accurate. I don't think it's biblical. And that those who are left behind, uh-oh, are the 144,000. And maybe that's a literal 144,000 true kind of leveled up believers. Or maybe it's a figurative number for a, a remnant of the church. Another theory is that that's, that's a 144,000 Jews who were saved during that seven-year period. Um, I don't believe any of those are accurate because I'm not taking a literal perspective on it. I think 144,000 is pretty obvious to me in chapter 14 we're not going to read it don't have time also talks about this same 144,000 but it gives us a little more definition in the first five verses I think it clearly identifies this group as those that have had the name of the father written on their foreheads that is the church all the Christians all the people who belong to Jesus are those this this group of 144,000 people these are the ones purchased by the blood of the Lamb, which we see in chapter 5, verse 9, and other places. It's highly unlikely that these are ethnic Jews because no one is purchased any other way than by Jesus. You can't, if you don't have the name of Jesus on your forehead, to use Revelation's language, if you have not been purchased by the blood of the Lamb, you are not in the church. And there is only one church. I'll prove it. Matthew 3, 7 to 10. The church is the new Israel. We'll get into this more when we look at the new Jerusalem. Um, but Matthew 3, 7 to 10 says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees, this is John the Baptist, 
When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So if you're a Gentile Christian, you are referred to by John the Baptist as a stone. That's you. There's only one way into good, the good graces of God, and that is through Jesus Christ. There's only, only one way to get the name on your forehead, and that is through Jesus Christ. There is not two Gospels. There are not two kingdoms. There are not two churches. There's one church and one way. That includes Gentiles and Jews that are following Jesus, okay? This is the one true church, both Jew and Gentile. Now, I'm not saying, before you get mad at me, I'm not saying Israel is not special. I'm not saying that. Read Romans 9, 1 through 5. Paul makes it very clear. They are very special. But there's only one church. There'll be one family in heaven. Just one. And there's one Jesus in one way, okay? Um, I'm saying an awful lot in one minute, but I'll leave it there. So what does the number mean? So if, we, if we've established that the 144,000 is the church, those are Christians, Jew and Gentile together, um, on the earth, I would say, because in a minute we see this talk about the multitudes. That's everybody in heaven when we're done. There'll be a multitude, and we'll see them all. What does the number mean? Why that weirdly specific number? I think this is a fun question. This is less controversial than the other one. I don't think it's about a literal 144,000. The number means something. Revelation 21 has a detailed description of the new Jerusalem, which comes thumbs down from heaven. It's a symbol of the church. The number 12 is used there over and over, as is... 144, which is 12 times 12 for you who like to do math. That is what 12 times 12 is, all right? I think it's really obvious when you read chapter 21 that this number, 144,000, is just an obvious hat tip that this group is the church. He points us directly to the new Jerusalem, which is the church. He says, this is 12, this is 12, there's 12 elders, there's 12, there's 12 of this, there's 12 of that. And then there's 144 you can read through. You see that number over and over again. He's just tying the two together. This is the same thing. I think it's obvious that this number is just the church. It is all those that are purchased by the blood of the Lamb that we've been talking about. It's symbolic. So what does it mean to be sealed? Which I think is the most important question. It's the question most people don't spend their time thinking about. They worry about, what does this number mean? And that's not the point, all right? The point is, what does it mean to be sealed? What is God doing in this vision John has? He is saying, wait, before, you, before, before you, the winds blow, seal up these people. Let's let the Bible tell us what it means. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 to 22 says, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. 
Again, in Ephesians 1, 13 to 14, it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Same language, right? So a seal, we've also seen seals already on the scroll. What do seals do? Think back in, like, when you were in school going to hit or looking at history and what did kings do what was a seal for think about that for a minute it was one to authenticate something so a king or really anybody would maybe write a letter or have a document you would fold it over and you would seal it with wax with the king's ring signet ring which has which was just a way of saying signing something saying this is mine this is authenticated this is not a forgery the other thing it indicated was ownership if you own something, you sealed it and said, this is mine. It's like putting your name on it. Wink, wink. So with authentication and ownership, think about it, comes safety, meaning the contents of this thing that is sealed is protected. And it brings power, which means the contents, contents are executed on the authority of the owner. Right? So if I bring you a letter from the governor and it's sealed with his seal, you have to do what I can do, what I can execute what it says, not based on my authority, but on his, right? The one who sealed it. This is what Revelation 14 means when it says that the 144,000 had the lamb and the father's names written on their forehead. Many slaves of the time period were marked on their forehead by their master's name or symbol in, order to, in a similar way, indicating this is really... This is authenticated, and it indicates who the owner is. So I think the application here is pretty obvious and awesome. If you are a Christian, then Christ has permanently marked you as belonging to him and the Father. This sealing is not only performed by the Holy Spirit, but it is sealed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the seal. That's awesome. If you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. He's not just there doing cool stuff and giving you goosebumps, right, and making you feel good, and then other times when you sin, making you feel bad. His main function is to seal you in Christ. He is the guarantee that you, will not, you are not only in Christ right now in this moment, but you will forever be, Right? You have been in the past and are being continually authenticated not by your works but by the Holy Spirit. You belong to Christ not because of your good works but because of the Holy Spirit's continual testimony. You are becoming like Christ not because of your effort but because you are sealed in Christ already. It's a wonderful message. So what about the safety and power part? That the contents of what is sealed is protected. Does this mean that we will not be affected by the judgments being continually wrought out on the world around us? I hopefully convinced you last week that nobody is promised to avoid suffering ever. Right? Christian or not. In fact, we're really promised the opposite by Jesus. If you follow me, you will follow me in every way. So wherever I go or have been, that's where you will go. And part of that includes suffering. 
I think a really good biblical example we can use to kind of help us get our heads around this, because there is hope in this. It's not all bad. I left you in kind of a dark place last week. But it gets, there's some hope here too. If you think about the Israelites in captivity in Egypt, most people know this story. The Israelites had been, had been taken as slaves in Egypt. Egypt was a pagan, pagan, pagan place. Wicked, materialistic, did not worship God, worshiped everything but God. And here the people of God are enslaved in this pagan place. And the way God gets them out of it, remember the story, is he sends Moses, right? And Moses goes in and he asks nicely. And Pharaoh says, no. And then God, through Moses, brings plagues. Remember that? Judgments. There's like the, the, the river turns to blood. There's the frogs. There's the locusts. There's the, even the firstborn dies of every household. Pretty, pretty gross. Now think about where were the Israelites during all these plagues? They were living right there. The judgments were not towards them, were not on them, but they were living among them, Right? They were affected by those judgments. And the one beautiful exception we see is when the angel of death comes to kill the firstborn, that God says what? He says, take the blood of a lamb and spread its blood over your doorpost. And the angel of death, the judgment of God, will pass over your house and only land on the Egyptians. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel and the mercy of God. I think that's a beautiful metaphor or picture or sign of what he's talking about here, of what it's like for us to live in a world that is under God's continual judgment. God is constantly bringing judgment against the world, saying, repent, 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 repent. Right? If at any point Pharaoh had relented and said, I'll let him go, then the judgments would have stopped. That was the whole point of the judgments, right? Okay, we're going to do another one. Are you sure you don't want to let them go? Okay, I'll do another one. You sure you don't want to let them go? At any point, you can make this stop, Pharaoh. Just let him go. Just repent. And he stubbornly refused, refused, refused until the very last one, the worst one, which is the firstborn dying. And even then, he changed his mind. This is what it's like for us, isn't it? The judgment is not on you if you're in Christ, but you are affected by it. So to be sealed means we are not under the wrath of God, though we do live among those that are. So it will at times be quite hard to be here. To be sealed means that we are empowered by God to be his witnesses in the world, and to be sealed means that we are forever his. So we have the blood of the Lamb over our household, over us. And his judgment is passing over us. And we're constantly saying to the world, just repent. Right? Come into the house. Because here, we are not under judgment. Then after these 144,000, you see this great multitude from every nation. In white robes in heaven 
partying, right? Rejoicing. This is where we're headed. So while we're here, we are the 144,000, sealed by the Holy Spirit, not under judgment, but living among those that are. And our job is to call those that are under the judgment of God into the household of God where there is covering, where the blood of Jesus covers us. Moving towards a future, hopefully a very near future, where we will join the great multitude of those who have gone before us and we'll have a party. This is what we're doing here. So John is showing us this is what the church is supposed to be doing. He's saying this is who you are. This is what your job is. You're not here to settle and try to get comfortable. You're not here just to kind of build a little kingdom for yourself and try to avoid all the frogs jumping around or the locusts. Your job is to go out into the judgment and say, come into the household of God. Come into the kingdom. Come into the church. Don't you want to be here? (laughs) All you have to do is repent. All you have to do is repent and come into the house. So you don't need to be afraid of the future. You really don't. Or the present. Because the Holy Spirit has sealed you and given you a job to do. Your hope is not in avoiding trouble, but it is in the promise of Christ and the seal of that promise in the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 9 says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. So if you feel crushed, or not crushed, excuse me, afflicted, (laughs) feel perplexed, I feel perplexed all the time. Persecuted, struck down, well, that's normal. That's normal. Shouldn't be surprised. You're living among those who are under God's judgment. But you're not crushed. You're not in despair. You're not forsaken. And you're not destroyed. And the thing that, one of the things that drives our sense of mission and purpose in the world is to recognize that your neighbor might be destroyed. Your neighbor has a reason to despair. Don't give false hope to the world. Don't tell people everything's going to be okay. Because outside of Christ, it really isn't going to be okay. Christmas is a funny time, isn't it? We talk about peace, peace on earth, peace and goodwill. To all. That's true. But you can't leave out the whole story. It's only peace and goodwill to those who are in Christ. We are not all the children of God. That phrase gets thrown around quite a lot, doesn't it? Well, we're all God's children. No, we're not. You're only God's child if you have been adopted into his family. That's it. So going around spreading hope 
when there is no hope without the actual reason for the hope is it's awful it's like watching your child run towards this, a busy street wanting to play in the middle of a busy street and going it'll be fun go ahead sweetheart you won't get hurt can't read these verses and come away, I don't think, feeling that way. Because our drive and motivation is to recognize that we are the children of God, covered by his blood, but not everybody is. And one of the reasons we go out and we bear witness to who Christ is, is because we don't want other people to be destroyed. So why don't we stand up together and I'll pray for you. So I want you, if, you're, if you've been nervous or scared about all this, you know, the sky literally falling. It's not literally falling, but it's actually far worse than that. <laughs> but the hope is, if you're in Christ, the, the good news is that it's not for you. And once you see that, it becomes a motivation for your ministry life. For the spiritual output in your life that you give away Jesus. I want to pray for those two things. One for those who are afraid for no reason (laughs) and for those who are afraid for good reason. Those who are not in Christ that we would bear witness. Amen? So let's do that. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, thank you for being the seal on our hearts. For sealing us in the kingdom thank you that there is nothing I can do to shake you off I cannot unseal myself any more than I can seal myself so I pray for every believer in this room that you would reassure them that you are in control and you are good and you're loving and that you have promised that they are covered by the blood of the lamb they will persevere and they will overcome Lord, I pray that we would be also very aware that outside of the the spiritual walls of the body of Christ, it is a scary and dangerous place. Help us not to be callous about that. Help us not to walk through life aloof and unaware that while we may be afflicted but not destroyed that the world is under your judgment and it will be destroyed that people are in danger under your wrath and that we would bring the gospel to those people that we would call every tribe and tongue into the family of God that we would be with our neighbors in that great multitude in our future. That no family member or neighbor or friend or associate would be left out. So God, I pray that you would 
just by your spirit motivate us in that direction as a church. God, that this year would be a year of reaping a harvest of souls. That this 144,000 would grow and that your kingdom would expand in the triad, God. Use this church to bear witness that the Lamb has come and He has ascended the throne and the seals have been broken, the scroll has been rolled out. That we would call many people into your kingdom, God. Holy Spirit, anoint us for that task. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.